Super Bowl prediction. I do not have any knowledge or, frankly, interest in sports, so I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Who is playing? Who is playing? Seriously, that's where I'm at. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Human Element Cares podcast on modern marketing. I am so excited. We have a returnee, Alex Heath, reporter at The Information. Welcome back, Alex. Thanks for having me back. It's good to be back. So the last time we talked was like Facebook boycott. That's, that's basically oh, where we were. Yeah. That's so, right. Which in the new calendar of internet misinformation America is roughly 40 decades ago. That's that <laughs> July was literally 40 decades ago. That sounds right. Yeah. So I'm super excited to have you here because you cover all kinds of interesting spaces. Let me start with this. Of the billion stories that have happened over the ensuing couple of months, or even something very recent, what what are you kind of spending a lot of your time on in this in this moment right now? Oh, man. Well, gosh, I think since we last talked, Facebook got sued for antitrust. I think that's one thing that happened. Yeah, well, I have a question on that there, so we'll get into that in a second. (laughs) I'm definitely following that. Facebook was sued for antitrust. That was a pretty big development. I think Zuckerberg testified before Congress with Dorsey about Section 230, et cetera. Gosh, yeah, you're right. It's like like 40 years transpired. It's It's been a lot. Well, and they were sued, but then there was that big house antitrust report on Amazon, Apple, Google, Facebook, right? That kind of like right. was was the setup for then the lawsuit by the FTC and the, the state attorney general coalition. Facebook launched its oversight board. I don't know if you've talked about that on this show. This like we have not, but I, I, we, you could get into that. Yeah, we could. It's kind of interesting. This like basically a Supreme Court for content moderation. And then Facebook said it was going to be putting out smart glasses very soon. So, yeah, it's, it's been a pretty weird uh, and eventful several Cause, months. Because why not? Why right? not? Why not? Once you've, you know, semi-partially been adjacent to uh, all kinds of crazy stuff around election fraud, put out some glasses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I guess, you know, one of the things we talked about that was most interesting when we got together the last time was I asked you a question about the morale at Facebook in July. Hmm. because it was clear that there was sort of a a bit of an internal uprising around the role that Facebook plays in society and the obligations that clearly their employee set feels versus maybe the perspective of senior management, which has, I think, this more, for lack of a better descriptor, uber-libertarian bent. What does that morale look like now? What are you hearing from people inside the company in terms of, Better, worse, did the all the nonsense of the election and the January 6th uprising, like how has that impacted the folks inside the company? Gosh, it's it's tough because Facebook is such a large company. I think they have over 58,000 employees now and they have very different orgs in the company doing very different things. There's this massive multi-thousand person group doing all the AR, VR stuff that is honestly pretty insulated from all the stuff that, you know, you talk about on the show. So it depends by the organization. I mean, Facebook does actually poll its employees regularly internally about satisfaction and morale. That has definitely gone down 
in the last year. It actually kind of tracks directly to whatever they're getting pressured on in the news, right? So mm. before they decided to to kick Trump off, he's not really kicked off, but like blocking his ability to post. Employees were very up, upset about that and what Facebook was going to do or not going to do. That felt like another little boiling point moment, kind of similar to the what kicked off the boycott with Trump's post of, about the uh, the Black Lives Matter protests. And yeah, it's it's I, I do think that now that Trump is is out of the picture, knock on wood, that Facebook's kind of internal uproar crowd will settle down a bit. I mm-hmm. think people feel generally good about the decision they made in terms of you know, indefinitely keeping Trump off of his account. What is the status of that right now? I mean, it's not Mm. what Twitter did. It's not a permanent suspension. No. And what is the process by which it may change? So it's been kicked to this oversight board, which is this thing Facebook launched right before the election that they've been working on for years, which is like this external tribunal group that they're funding through this trust, but is not Facebook employees. It's actually a bunch of pretty vocal Facebook critics and like, you know, people with uh, very impressive, you know, LinkedIn resumes. You've got like a former prime minister. You've got like a Nobel Peace Prize <laughs> finalist, uh, poet laureate. Like, it's it's pretty impressive the group that they've assembled. So we managed and, to keep the Daily Caller off of this one, right? Correct. And Ben Shapiro okay. is not on it either. And they're meant to be this like global court that Facebook kicks its most controversial decisions to for like a binding overruling, basically. And they did that with this Trump thing. They basically said, you all make the call on whether we should permanently kick him off, have him back, or something in the middle. And right. that decision is coming in the next, you know, several weeks. And regardless of what happens, Facebook will get a beating for it, but at least they'll be able to say it wasn't our decision, right? And that was kind of the whole point of this thing that they set up. So that's where the whole Trump situation is. Got it. So and it, is there any anticipated date of a next ruling or discussion? I think we will see it either by the end of this month or early March is my projection. Okay. Yeah. Got it. You wrote a piece, I think I have this right, but I think you wrote a piece in December around Facebook disbanding their, for lack of a better discussion, kind of global elections team, like 300 folks in a, in a dedicated mm-hmm. organization that. What was that team doing and you know, why did they shut it down? What was sort of the discussion around that? Yeah, so Facebook had this kind of centralized civic integrity org is what they called it, which is just people who are full-time devoted to figuring out and anticipating Facebook's roles in elections, civic discourse around the world. And this was a direct like answer to the 2016 blowback that they faced with Trump's election and the Russian intervention there. And... Right at the end of the election cycle, you know, the, the Biden won uh, in, in late December, they disbanded this group. Essentially, like the, the leader went on extended leave, which is like tech talk for, you know, like new job. And the group was kind of dispersed, I guess you could say. That's that's like the most charitable way of putting it into a bunch of other, you know, parts of the overall integrity group. I mean, they still have people working on this topic. It's just not like a centralized team anymore, which... You know, people who were concerned about it, who, you know, have worked at Facebook or work at Facebook were like, to me, that is a problem because it could mean that, you know, the sway that these employees have in their respective organizations is lessened if they don't have a, you know, a key leader that that is high up in the org chart. 
Facebook obviously disputes all this and says they still are prioritizing civic integrity. We're just getting rid of the 300 people that work on it. No one got fired. Just just okay. basically redistributed into every, all the other orgs. So there's no kind of centralized org anymore. And it's just kind of an interesting development. And, you know, that group was like the agitators. They were the... Um, the group that was like doing research saying like what we're, you know, like we shouldn't whitelist politicians from fact checking. Like we need to be more aggressive like Twitter with like blocking retweets on things that are, you know, bad information from like yep. the president, for example. So they were like the more, you know, aggressive group, whereas like the Facebook senior leadership is a little more pragmatic. They don't want to be as paternalistic. So that was kind of the dynamic at play. Which is what makes it feel a little... Weird. Even if it's not intended to be, it feels like a decision maybe that doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, the continuing level of need for oversight. Well, right? and the, the timing of it, right? The timing yeah. that it they came, you know, literally right after the election was over. Yeah. So you mentioned this a couple minutes ago in the intro. Facebook has managed to pull, you know, the daily double in both being sued for antitrust and rattling the saber about participating in a suit around antitrust against someone else. Can we talk a little bit about both those stories? Yeah, yeah, it's super interesting. So Facebook is currently under, they're facing a lawsuit by the FTC in almost every state in the union about antitrust violations, particularly concerning their purchases of Instagram and WhatsApp. You know, this lawsuit seeking to force them to unwind those acquisitions and at the same time, we've seen Facebook really up its critiques of Apple in the last several months because what Apple is doing is they have these, uh, you know, I'm sure listeners of this podcast particularly know a lot about this. We've got IDFA informed humans, but my mom uh, listens too, so we need your explanation. <laughs> Apple is making it harder to track people across apps on iPhones and iPads with a new prompt that basically will force developers to ask people to consent to this behavior it sounds ominous, like who wants to be tracked across apps, right? So most people are expected to not to not opt in. Facebook's in particular, you know, their ad business benefits greatly from this kind of tracking, from being able to stitch together data sets yeah. across apps and websites. You know, the Facebook login is in thousands and thousands of apps. All this is about, you know, following you across the internet, building a profile of you, and then, you know, you're able to do very good targeting, saying you saw an ad in on a website, and we know that you converted and did that purchase because of an ad we showed you on Instagram last week, right? So what Apple is doing is basically destroying that capability, at least at the detailed level that Facebook has enjoyed. And they're very mad about it. And they have been putting out newspaper ads, you know, kind of positioning themselves as like standing up for small businesses, arguing that small businesses that rely on cheap targeted advertising will be hurt the most from this. And the backdrop of all this is that there is deep animosity between Mark Zuckerberg and Tim Cook and just the senior leaders of both companies uh, because Apple's positioned itself as the privacy, anti-misinformation, anti-data tracking brand, right? And they've done that at the expense of Facebook in, in a lot of ways, especially since 2016. I think Facebook sees this as like the first serious warning shot at them that Apple may not have a problem in the future coming for their first-party data business, right? Because right now yep. it's just third-party data that's affected by this change. You know, you can still track people without getting their consent when they're using your app. 
But what if Apple decides we think that behavior is, you know, nefarious too if you're not super transparent? Right. Or you or you haven't shown yourself to be enough of a quote unquote model citizen in our view. Right. An app store model citizen. And so yep. in the future, what's to say, you know, that you open Facebook on iOS 15 and it says Facebook wants to track you in this app and use all this information. Yeah. <laughs> with a prompt, right? Like, what's to stop that from happening? I think Facebook's worried about that. And it's also just an opportunity for them to dig in against Apple because this is a decade-long feud that has been building. It was a cold war. I think now it's becoming a real war in public because I reported that Facebook has actually been building its own antitrust lawsuit against Apple kind of as a result of this and how they feel Apple has unfairly targeted them in the app store, keeping their gaming app off the app store, not letting them distribute apps in their apps, things like this. They're fairly technical, but really at its heart, it gets to like who has the power of distribution. And Facebook has tremendous distribution power in its own right, but Apple has like the ultimate, which is the app store. So it's Facebook wants to basically loosen that grip, which is the same thing Epic Games is doing with its lawsuit against Apple. The goal there is the same. You know, it remains to be seen whether Facebook decides to actually file this thing. They've been working on it for months. They almost have filed it a couple times. I think they will. And I think they might get other companies to join on with them. I'll put it this way. I don't, there's other very senior leaders in tech that feel that there's a strong antitrust case to be made against Apple, particularly in the U.S., I think. It's going to be a very interesting year on that front. It has a little bit of everything, right? I mean, it has sort of two gigantic powers, each with enormous control uh, over different ecosystems. And then, of course, it really helps that there's actual bad blood. <laughs> like the personal animosity is a nice touch, too. This is going to be a fun story for everybody to look at. And I think, it, look, it, you know, this is when you start, you know, adding into the mix, adding into the spice, governmental action, it's, you know, Titan versus Titan versus government versus Titan there's going to be a lot to cover. Yeah, and to me, it just shows how powerful these companies are because it's it's taken years of buildup and several government agencies, uh, almost every state in the U.S., to even like bring a lawsuit against Facebook to challenge some of its behavior. Whereas Apple just rolled out like a, a policy change to its software last year and has Facebook scrambling like mad, right? Like, who actually has power over these companies? It's their peers right now, right? That's like where this tension comes from. So it is fascinating. I mean, Apple is literally reshaping the mobile ad industry with this change and doing it in a more broad way than any regulation I think people could have dreamed of. Absolutely. Infinitely more powerful and impactful than, than you know, congressional regulation. So, uh, you know, one of the things that sort of is in the mix here is 2.30. What is your gut instinct or what insight do you have or bets are you placing on what the new administration, new regulatory environment will mean for 2.30? It's one of these things where, you know, both parties actually agree to some extent on something's got to change. Mm -hmm. What do you think that looks like? You know, complete abolition, modification? Modification. There's not, I don't think, strong uh, consensus to do complete abolition of 230, which protects, you know, hosters of other comments from users from being liable for what their users say broadly. Uh, you know, there's obviously, you can't host child pornography or terrorism content, right? But uh, broadly, that's what it does. And 
Mark Zuckerberg has been pretty vocal that he is, you know, advocating for Section 230 reforms. Jack Dorsey, I think, said the same thing when they were in the Senate hearing together last fall. You know, the big companies like it because anytime you tighten regulation on something like this, it benefits the incumbents because they have the money and the resources to comply. Same thing, we saw the same thing with GDPR. We're going to see the same thing with CCPA. It benefits the big guys. Uh, Regulation usually benefits the big guys. And so Mark is advocating for it because Facebook's already like working to be kind of compliant with where the winds are shifting, which is like you basically need to be able to publicly show that you are meeting minimum thresholds for removing bad content, that you are investing significantly in it. And, you know, for all the knocks Facebook gets, they do have the most robust content moderation approach of any platform in the world, uh, bar none. Like, I'm, I feel very confident saying that. And that doesn't obviously match the coverage, but that's it's because it's they're also the biggest platform in the world. I think we will see reform. I don't think it'll be this year. I mean, maybe not even next year, especially if we see Congress, you know, flip in, in two years. Flip. But, you know, I do think the winds are going towards some kind of change for sure. Yeah, I haven't looked at polling recently, but my gut tells me that polling around the creation of some level of liability for platforms as it relates to misinformation, you know, harmful speech, you know, you can't just buy a 30 second on CBS and, you know, talk about lasers starting forest fires and, you know, all that kind of nonsense. So, yeah. And it's just tricky too, because like, I don't want a world where the government dictates what is misinformation and what's not. Agreed. You know, that's not the direction I think anyone wants to go, but yeah, you're right. I mean, the fact that Facebook is not liable for stuff like that is pretty wild. So, you know, you raise a good point. And, you know, this is so topical, right? So we've had this Marjorie Taylor Greene thing all week. Let's keep the politics out of it. There is a fundamental question here, right? Like, it does make a lot of people, myself one of them, I think you just said the same thing, nervous to have governmental entities you know, playing a part of determining what is and isn't right or wrong or misinfo, disinfo, et cetera. And yet, it also feels like we can't keep doing what we're doing. How do we resolve this? I don't know. I mean, the most interesting people who are much smarter about this than me, and I've actually worked in these companies and like hopped fences and now work at advocacy groups in D.C. or whatever, and not just the ones that are like for the tech companies or in their pocket, you know, that are being paid by them. But like the smartest things I've seen is like algorithmic amplification. Should there be legislation around if you are surfacing something to someone through an algorithm that you programmed, you should be liable for the outcomes of that if it leads to violence or things that are like clearly defined as illegal. And again, I think when you get into the misinformation space, that's even, that's just tricky. Even hate speech, it's hard. Like, are we going to come to a commonly accepted definition of hate speech, like a legal definition in the U.S.? I don't think so. I don't see us ever getting there. You know, Germany has been interesting. Like, they've defined certain things around the Holocaust and things in their country's history and built law around that about what you can and can't say. But I just don't see us going there in the U.S. at all. I think consumer pressure will actually have a more meaningful change on how these companies operate. You know, I think people want less, I don't know, just uh, angry platforms to like, you know, post and like read on, you know, I think people want like calmer environments. 
I have a feeling that that will probably drive more, you know, incentive realignment than any legislation. Yeah, I tell you what, that is, that last bit is one of the great questions of our time, that one. Yeah. Snap revenue mm. look kind of decent. Have they yeah. actually found a model? Uh, well, they haven't changed their model, I guess. I guess what's happened is they're starting to move out of like the experiment. I mean, you would know this better than I. They're, I, I assume they're starting to move out of like the experimental budgets of most, you know, large yeah, I think agencies. They, they, their scale has gotten into actual budgets, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're growing. They're growing users faster than Facebook, and not just the Blue app, but Facebook's entire suite of apps. The, the year-over-year growth last quarter was 15%. Snap is 22 I think they're still growing faster than Twitter. I mean, it's it's pretty remarkable. A lot of that growth is, you know, in under-monetized countries, you know, outside of North America and Europe. I think people are starting to understand the app and the ad formats, right? Especially after Instagram kind of cribbed a lot of it and popularized yep. it. So vertical video people get. I think people are starting to get the AR stuff, the lenses and all that. You would know this better yep. than I. But I think, you know, I, I hear them kind of throwing out numbers and, you know, lift, like sentiment lift numbers and all these things from these brand activations with all these these fancy AR lenses. And people play with them. I mean, people use them for extended yeah, no, periods they, of time. They, they definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. So that I think that is uh, probably so underappreciated by investors. But I think you're right. But it's something that is going to only keep growing, and they're very far ahead on that. Yeah, I think they benefited from leaning into direct response and leaning into SMBs when they did, and it was a very painful transition in the last. That was like, gosh, when there were like five dollars a share, now they're like sixty a share when they started that transition. And so like it, it's helped them because like Twitter was, is still super slow and late to getting, you know, SMB advertisers on board and they're struggling, you know, through the pandemic as a result, whereas Snap has benefited greatly. And, you know, I'm actually curious if Apple's changes will hurt them, you know, just as bad, if not more than Facebook, because they have built up this kind of robust, you yep. know, app delivery ad network, right? Again, it's painful for everybody, but they don't... Again, they lack the scale, so mm. it's going to have a real impact for them too. What's your sense on Twitter post Donald Trump in terms of? I think they're going to be fine. Yeah, you think? I do. I think this whole obsession with like you know, I, <laughs> like the, I think the day after the confirmation or whatever, there was some analyst report about how this is going to hurt Twitter, and Twitter stock was down like seven or nine percent or something, and. I just, I don't buy that narrative. I, that's been the narrative, you know, for the last four years is that, you know, Trump has benefited Twitter greatly. And he has for like a very small subset of people who like, you know, go there directly for that. But my concerns with Twitter are more like operational concerns. It's more like, can they actually get the ad business turned around internally? Are they making, they've been making a lot of small acquisitions. Are they smart? Yeah, they have. Is there a grand strategy there that we don't see? Or is this like them just trying to grasp for straws and figure out how they can grow? Is there a grand strategy for the for the service? That's like my biggest question. It's not like, is Trump being gone going to hurt their engagement? I don't think so. I mean, they're they're the news wire for the world, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's always going to be important. You know, it's funny. Obviously, all these companies get criticized for being opaque about lots of different stuff. But strategically, Twitter definitely, in my opinion, 
has been the hardest to figure out sometimes where they're headed strategically, right? Like you can infer some things about the actions and the statements of some of the others, even though, again, none of them is wildly transparent. But in Twitter's case, it always seems to be a very fluid, somewhat unknown situation as an external observer from a strategic angle. I agree with that. I mean, they have kind of from a brand perspective leaned into what's happening kind of the newsiness of their service, I think, yep. in, a, in a clarifying way in the last couple of years. But what are their aspirations for user growth, for, you know, how many people could realistically be using Twitter as it is today? And I don't think that's a huge product. I don't think it's like, you know, 500 million, 2 billion people would use Twitter as it is today. But they're, you know, they just bought a newsletter company. They're doing interesting things around blockchain, kind of decentralization, and, you know, maybe they have grander ambitions that we don't fully understand. I'm going to change gears. Two last questions, and we'll get to the lightning round. We talked a lot about TikTok the last time you were on because we were in the midst of the whole mandated sale mm-hmm. shenanigans, whatever that thing wound up being. Here we are six months later. What did that wind up being, and has anything changed? I think it proved to be what, you know, a lot of us suspected it was from the beginning, which is like a total farce, like a political farce (laughs) uh, designed to benefit Trump and to play into, you know, his his anti-China narrative, which, you know, I'm sure his advisors were telling him was going to like help with voters and turnout and et cetera. Uh, and you could see as he got consumed by other things, like the whole the whole TikTok thing just like fell off the face of the map in the run up to the election. And I guess they're still working on it. I, I, the last I heard a couple of weeks ago is you know TikTok's owner ByteDance is still in negotiations with the government about you know what this restructuring is going to look like. So I do think they will, you know, barring like Biden or you know someone in this new administration deciding it's this is not worth it. I do think there will be some kind of restructuring with like an oracle, like had been discussed. But I think they're going to be just fine. I think ByteDance is still going to be in control of the products, yep. right? And you know, if that wasn't the case, I would say that TikTok's probably doomed. But I think ByteDance is going to retain control of the strategy there. And it, who knows when it could come? I mean. The news cycle moves so fast, we just like forget about these things. I know. So like, if you're Larry Ellison, what have you gotten out of this and what will you wind up getting out of this? They could be getting a big cloud client, right? Like that's, I think, what Oracle <laughs> wants. What they need is they need like a sexy, you know, big cloud client. Isn't he like, he's on his like private island in Hawaii now. So who knows, maybe he doesn't care anymore. Yeah, I mean, look, I, n- nobody's worried for Larry. Let's be clear. Uh, nobody's worried for Larry. He's got plenty of money. He, he's isn't he the one that like loves the yachts? He's got like a whole yeah. He has yacht a situation. very strong yacht game, and I think also like rowing. He owns like a pro rowing team or something like that. Uh, yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Last one before we get into the lightning round. I'd be remiss, even though it's almost old news now, if we didn't talk a little bit about the GameStop thing, and in particular the implications for the democratization of investment and the platforms associated with that Robinhood at all. What are you hearing about what the implications of that are an investor perspective in Silicon Valley? You know, what, what, what does all that mean? Is it, was it a two week story and then we're going back to whatever, or is something actually going to happen here? I think the fallout will be that everyone realized how opaque this industry is and even apps like Robinhood that kind of claim to democratize finance and have, you know, to certain respects, 
they are tied to this like financial plumbing of, of the markets that is just very yeah. complicated that people who work in it, you know, I've listened to a lot of podcasts and interviews with people who are way smarter about this than me. And they even struggle to really understand what happened and just realizing how opaque this industry is and that uh, these apps are like skins on top of an existing industry that are not really, yep. you know, like, like Robinhood is beholden to the same firm that was like bailing out the hedge funds that Wall Street Bets was like making lose money. So I think we'll see apps come out that try to like distance themselves from that and like public, for example, which is kind of like a social investing app where you can see other people's trades if they opt to, has said they're going to stop doing Robinhood's business model entirely and go to like a tipping model where like Robinhood was selling your trades to like big Wall Street firms so they could essentially get a peek at what all the, you know, quote unquote, dumb money was doing. And I think apps, including Robinhood, potentially will try to distance themselves from that model. And maybe we'll go back to a more kind of less hyper growth free focused strategy where like, you know, you don't just get like a grand of free margin, not free, but like instant margin in your Robinhood account to start trading and like no fees. Maybe like there are some fees and that's okay because it aligns these apps with their customers yeah. and maybe that's a better way to go. You know, it's like kind of like the Facebook story all over again. It's just like misaligned incentives, right? Yeah, I, I think for me, the two things that have sort of impacted me, the, the us against themness isn't going anywhere, right? It's everywhere. It's mm -hmm. politically embedded in the country. It's embedded in other sort of institutional, individual relationships, a la, and I hate this cliche, but Wall Street, Main Street, like that sense that, you know, Greenwich can go do whatever the hell they want and play by a whole set of rules and, you know, eyes, John Q. Public can't, that's not going anywhere. And I think it'll be interesting to see what comes of that because at some point that may have political implications, right? That may move policy, that may move regulation, that may move what is allowable in the way some hedge funds operate or are, yeah. you know, the level of transparency they have. I think you're right. I mean, that's like what Elizabeth Warren, AOC, Ted Cruz yeah, yeah. all aligned yep. on. Like, I mean, the three of them are aligned on something. Are you, I mean, what does that say? <laughs> well, I would argue they're aligned on two things. And again, I, I, I don't know specifically whether they've all made commentary on, on Section 230. But my gut instinct is there's a sentiment around 230. And then there's this, you know, power to the people, transparency in, in you know, the what I'll call the the high-end hedge fund world of things. You're right. I think I think that there there is a little bit of, you know, to me, all politics is a circle. And at some point, you know, Bernie runs into Rand Paul on the other end of the circle. <laughs> it's a continuum, right? It's not oh, a straight man. line. And I think That's there's scary. a little bit of that on this issue. Yeah, yeah, you I, like that well, perspective? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's scary to think about. You know, and also I, I think, so the guy on Reddit named Deep F***ing Value who basically yep. created this whole movement with GameStop. <laughs> His name's Keith Gill. He's apparently going to testify before Congress later right. this year. And that's going to be like the ultimate moment of this whole narrative that you're talking about. And you're going to have yeah. like probably the CEO of Robin Hood, Keith Gill, hopefully someone from like Citadel <laughs> sitting before Congress. And Keith's going to be like, I just like stocks. And then you're going to have these other guys like 
I mean, the quotes, the memes are going to be incredible. You know, him explaining diamond hands, you know, all these things. We're going to have this like collision of policy and internet memes that's going to be fantastic. It is going to be, that'll be must-see entertainment right there. Definitely. Right. It, I mean, it'll be um, Succession, right? It'll be an episode of Succession in some ways. Or Billions. Maybe it'll be an man. overlap, a crossover episode between the two. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a great idea. <laughs> All right. Lightning round. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Favorite meal you've had in pandemic? My wife makes killer pancakes on the weekends. We've been turning that into a ritual. And also we just order pizza delivery a lot. Bassano's here in Los Angeles is just A+. plus. So just very healthy, you know, really watching our physique during the pandemic. <laughs> low, low carb. Yeah. <laughs> Personal hobby or obsession launched by the pandemic? I got to say Clubhouse. I've been spending a lot of time on Clubhouse. <laughs> And All right, let's directly. get into it. That's that's in the lightning round. All right, talk about Clubhouse. You are literally, I get 17 notifications a day that you're on Clubhouse. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I just think Clubhouse is super <laughs> fascinating. It's it's this audio-based social network that is like still an invite-only beta. They have millions of users already. They're worth over a billion dollars and they've never made any money and they launched less than a year ago. And a, a, a tale as old as time. Alex. A tale, a as, tale old as, as old as time. And it's like a mix of like informal podcasts, talk radio, group audio calls, chats, all rolled together. I think you're going to start seeing a lot of brands coming on board. I'm already seeing like interesting like people going on to like talk up their new films or their new books and do like, you know, open discussions. I talk about stories there, talk about tech, like... The audience is really good. It's really high quality. And just spending a ton of, especially with AirPods, it's just like when you're walking the dog, cleaning around the house, sure. like it's a super easy thing to just listen in on. So I joined a, and I don't even know what the right names of these things are. I joined a room. What do they call them? Yeah. I don't even know. Room. room. Sure. Room. All right. Yeah. All right. So I'm close. The other day before, uh, I think it was before Liverpool United, and I joined this thing, and there's, you know, whatever, hundreds of people in this room. Mm -hmm. And the accent wall for me was was impenetrable. It was Manchester. Oh man! You know they're they're, they're a massive United's a massive club in Africa, a huge following in Africa. Sort of a African based accent. It's it's also massive in China. There was a China based. I was like, yeah. I had no, I couldn't understand what in the actual. By the way, nobody else could either, right? The people in Manchester can't understand what a Cantonese accent is. <laughs> It was hilarious, absolutely hilarious. I made it maybe five minutes before I was like, I don't know what anybody's saying. That's crazy because Clubhouse has grown so fast outside of the U.S. in the last just few weeks. This is a very new phenomenon. Yeah. They're like the top app in Japan, Germany, Australia on iOS. They're not on Android yet. And that was new. They were very much like a Silicon Valley insider app for yep. most of their existence. And it's really been only in the last like couple months that they've grown. And now you've got people in China on it like circumventing the firewall. It's, it's crazy. It, it was absolutely hysterical. I literally was like, I don't even know what we're I've heard. I've about. heard amazing stand-up comedy in Clubhouse. And they're adding, they're adding tipping into it eventually where you'll be able yep. to tip people who are speaking. They're going to make so much money off that. And like paid rooms where you have to pay to go in. Yeah, I've been in rooms with like 5,000 people where it's just like stand-up comics coming up and doing bits. It's pretty entertaining. This, Alex, by the way, is why we do the lightning round. Mm. <laughs> the good that, stuff. That may not have been the shortest answer, but it was a fun conversation. All right. <laughs> Vaccine status. Oh, I wish. 
I'm in LA, which is just a just a constant disaster of <laughs> operational failure at every level of government. So they apparently turned Dodger Stadium into a vaccine site, but I don't think I'm, you know, I'm not in the demographic. I'm probably going to get it in like October at this rate. So yeah, I saw um, it was disrupted by protesters when it opened the other day. Oh or yeah, anti-vaxxers yeah. like block the entrance. Yeah, we're we're a hot yep. mess out here. Last one, biggest prediction for 2021. Related to all that we've been talking about, I think Robinhood is going to be just fine. I think Robinhood is going to probably report incredible growth numbers when they go public later this year because they're still looking at that. And I think they will have lost some users who are caught up in this GameStop stuff, but it reminds me of the Facebook boycott. There's just such powerful kind of trends with this uh, happening where people are wanting to become retail investors. I think Robinhood is going to grow tremendously this year. How close to a major capital liquidity crisis did they come? Very close. And that's where they basically <laughs> lied to the press. That was the whole thing. Yep. You know, it didn't it took the CEO getting on Clubhouse with Elon Musk on like <laughs> 10 p.m. on a Sunday night with Elon grilling him repeatedly and he I think yep. Elon at one point was like, "Did they have a gun to your head? Just answer my question." And of course, like I guess maybe when he was talking to Elon, he felt like he needed to like actually explain himself and uh, versus the 14 TV interviews he did the day before. And yeah, he said they got like margin called like by billions and billions of dollars in a single day. Robinhood raised like $2 billion its entire, you know, lifespan as a company. Their trading partner requested like $3 billion from them as collateral yep. against GameStop, I think, by itself in one day. They raised over $3 billion in under a week after that event. So... Yeah, they, he went on TV and said we didn't have a liquidity, liquidity crisis, which could legally be in, after this investigation happens, which is what the SEC is doing, could be considered accurate if they saw that they were going to have a liquidity crisis and said, if we do this, we will have no money. The, the um, old anticipatory liquidity crisis? Right, which he did say a little bit. He was like, we were anticipating what was going to happen. So I guess you could say they didn't have a liquidity crisis. They knew they were going to within a matter of hours. And so they decided not to, which is still the same thing in my book. And he should have just said it. It would have actually aligned them from a brand with the retail investors because they could have said, actually, like, this was not our call. Like, we're still beholden to these, you know, big, big companies you don't understand. And they really fumbled that from from a brand strategy, you know, perspective, I think. I agree. I agree. But, you know, to give them a little bit of a pass in the moment, Tough. Yeah, when you're a brokerage app, it's tough to be like, hey, we're out of money. Yeah, that would go, yeah. Whole, who's going to do business with you? You admit that you well, just Well, like, and the, to say nothing of a run on people who have their money there. But I saw right. people on Twitter who were like, you know, what's guaranteed, what's not guaranteed, you know, all that kind of stuff by the government. It, it, you know, a run on the bank, a run on the, the brokerage is another problem. So exactly, it's a, just a, a, a brutal spot overall. Alex, you always deliver. Thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> this is super fun, man. Thanks for having me again. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of The Human Element. Remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Please smash that button and subscribe. Give us a like. Give us a comment. We love all of that. In the meantime, be well, be just, and we'll be back out to you real soon. By the way, Chiefs win the Super Bowl. You heard it here first. See ya.